Ever since the day that the Lord has risen again, this is the day that we have set aside that we call Palm Sunday or Holy Week. This would be the day when our Lord rode into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey, fulfilling prophetic scripture of himself. Jesus had camped across from the city with his disciples and cursed a fig tree before going in and thus helping the disciples to see that the fruit therein is going to be lacking in Jerusalem. Jesus will go in riding on the back of a donkey. He'll spend time cleansing the temple and turning over the table of the money changers. He will find himself at Calvary's cross and then in the grave. And this is the week that we celebrate. This is the week where we reflect upon the events that led up to the death of our Lord. And thus, Palm Sunday is a reflection of that. And it gives us pause this morning to see exactly why the apostles acted the way that they acted. To see the fuel in their fire for ministry. It is because Jesus is alive. So if you will, let's take our Bible and turn to Acts chapter 4. Hopefully you have had time to turn there in your Bible. I have the extreme privilege of holding this morning Miss Betty Robertson's Bible in my hand. And the reason that I hold Miss Betty Robertson's Bible in my hand is because last week she wrote some notes in this Bible. And I'm going to share a few of those notes with you this morning as to our precious dear saint of the Lord who wrote some notes, and I think it would be well to reflect upon them again. The sermon for today is entitled, Give Like You Mean It. Give Like You Mean It. I'll ask you, if you will, as we read God's precious, infallible, and inerrant word, let's stand in honor of the reading of God's word, asking him to speak to us today, maybe so like never before in our lives, turning our attention and our zeal towards the precious Lord Jesus, beginning at verse 32. The Bible tells us, Now the full number of those who believed, they were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and with great grace was upon them. And there was not a needy person amongst them. For as many as were owners of land or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any that had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. Lord, we pray that you would use this word today and teach us, Father, uh, how we as Christ followers might give and what we might give as an act of worship and praise to you. No, it's not money, it's not land, it's not possessions, but there are things, Father, that you have called us to do And we pray through your word, God, that you will elevate those things to our heart. Teach us in our mind. Let it find seed seed and rooting in our heart so that we might go out and give 
as you have called us to do so. Lord, we pray these things now in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. You may be seated. Now, you'll notice in the title of the sermon, there is a little phrase that is used there, give like you mean it. So there is a phrase, like you mean it, within the title of this sermon. It's the second time that that I have used this. Uh, Last week, we used this descriptor as saying, pray like you mean it. And you can add, as as far as that's concerned, any descriptor in that or any fill in the blank. So you can say, love like you mean it. You might be able to say, dance like you mean it. Or maybe not for some, but dance like you mean it. Or serve like you mean it. And the list can go on and on and on. It is an everyday way of saying, everyday language, everyday way of saying that whatever you do, whatever you do in this life, that you would fulfill it to the best of your ability or to do it with zeal, to do it with zeal, to serve the Lord in our context with excellence, to serve Jesus with all that we have. Last week, in fact, I used this phrase with a sermon that was entitled, Pray Like You Mean It. And I believe that the apostles and the disciples, they teach us a little something about praying. If you were with us last week, you'll know that the apostles' prayer and the people in the city, they taught us something about praying and to pray like we, like we mean it. We learn the truth from them about a rightly aligned and proper prayer. What does it look like for the Christ follower to have a prayer life that is, a pro- that is properly aligned with the will of God? And what did the apostles teach us? Well, for instance, the apostles pray such a prayer as this. When they begin this benediction, when they begin their prayer with such, such terminology as sovereign Lord. In fact, they use this word Lord, which they are implying Lord attributed to the leaders in Israel. They do not use the word kurios in the Greek that would normally be used for the Lord of creation. They are using the word Lord as if to say those men of Israel. It's a, it's a counter uh, to their leadership. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth. They prayed this in response to the earthly rulers of the day, declaring by saying, Sovereign Lord, that we serve God and not man. And so, as I mentioned, my dear saint in the Lord, Miss Betty Robertson, who went on to be with the Lord, she has some notations in her Bible. And at the very bottom of this uh, in Acts 4, right under, right under verse 25, this prayer of David, she has inscribed in her Bible, we serve God and not man. At the very top of that page, she says, God is in control, which means God is also not only sovereign, but then she has, he is self-sufficient. He is sufficient in himself. So the disciples teach us something about praying that God is in control and that he is sufficient in and of himself. They pressed in, not only giving attribution to God that he's in control and that he's sovereign and that he needs no outside influence, he is sufficient in himself. They began to press in this prayer by praying the word of God. They lifted up the psalm. 
Psalm 2, verse 1 through 2, acknowledging his majesty over the created order. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. He is king over creation. He is king over the earth. He is king over the men of Israel. See, the kings of the earth, they plotted against the anointed one, according to Psalm 2, verse 1 through 2. And they began to pray that Herod came and Pilate came and the Gentiles came and the Jews came and they plotted to kill Messiah. They plotted to kill Jesus. But all of this was in God's predestined plan. Before Herod drew his breath, before Pilate drew his breath, before the Gentiles and the Jews drew their first breath, before Adam even drew his first breath, it was in God's plan that his son would be slain for the sins of the world. Predestined, it is in your plan. And so they prayed together, they worshiped together by praying the scriptures. And then the Bible tells us that the whole place shook. They prayed so hard that it shook. And we look at that scripture and we say, man, what a day that would be when God's saints could gather in his house and pray in such a way, believing in God that the very foundation would feel as if it was shaking. And we say that's a good thing to look forward to. But the more powerful statement than just the here and now prayer happening here in this place right now, the most powerful statement in that in those scriptures was this, that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, I don't necessarily know if I want to pray that right here, right now, we pray in such a way that your pews would shake. But what I would pray for us today would be that we would be so consumed with the mission of God we would be so in tune with the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God that we would continue to speak the Word of God with boldness. This is a day where Christ followers cannot be complacent. The day which we live in, we need some bold men and women in the public square. We need some bold men and women to stand up for Jesus. So in today's episode, we're going to see a similar display of gospel community, much like what we found in Acts 2 and verse 44 that read, and all who believed they were together and they had all things in common. And this common bond that they shared together is where we would borrow our word for fellowship. In fact, in the Greek, it is the word koinonia. You have probably no doubt heard that word before. The koinonia fellowship, that is true fellowship, the common bond that they shared share together. What is that common bond? What is that true fellowship? It is that they share in Jesus. In short, this fellowship, this common bond, this unity, and the reason that we meet together every time we meet is because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is alive. That's why we meet. That should be our motive, shouldn't it? We don't come to just say hello to people and get to know people, although those things are good. We don't come to get together to just have a meal together or just to rub elbows. All those things are good. We come together because Jesus is alive. We come together because there is a mission field for us. There is something for you and I to do. And thinking upon what we are to do in light of what we read in Acts, I will say to you, as I have 
studied this text this week, that we must emphatically give testimony of God's mega grace. Give testimony to the grace of God, this outpouring of God's grace. Read with me again in verse 42. The Bible tells us now those that were together, the full number, they are of one heart and one soul. They are knit together and no one had anything that belonged to them that was their own for they had everything in common. Again, it's that common bond that they shared together. Now the Bible tells us already and it has, we have already seen that the Lord is adding to his church daily. This was becoming a larger number. God was shaking the very foundation. The Lord was was doing such a marvelous work that this early church, a handful of people, was shaking the very foundation of, of culture. They were turning the world upside down for Jesus. The Lord was working in such a marvelous way, it was beginning to change the landscape of culture. It was beginning to change the spiritual temperature of the land. It was beginning to change people's hearts and minds and worldview in, in, such a, 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 in such a marvelous way. The Lord was changing the landscape of the church. And so we calculate to some degree a tangible number of sorts. You know, us Baptists, we like to, we like to tally numbers. We like to keep how many numbers and what's doing what and how many... We like to say how many sandwiches we make and how many cars we sent out. Now, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing in and of itself. But we like these tangible numbers. Peter is preaching after Pentecost, and the Bible tells us through the hand of Luke, the evangelist, that there were 3,000 people that were saved that day. 3,000 people were saved under the preaching of Jesus as Messiah. There's another case where the man who was lame was healed by the power of Jesus through the hands of the apostles. This lame man was healed. And the Bible there tells us that there was 5,000 people who believed upon Jesus. So in my estimation, give or take a few numbers as the church was growing in 3,000 and the 5,000 framework, we could easily say, comfortably say, that there was close to 10,000 people who were saved from Pentecost until this episode in the Bible here today. 10,000 people through just a preaching and a proclamation of God's, of God's word. But I want you to notice the demeanor and the attitude of the early churches we've already read. So these people, they had a unity of heart. The Bible tells us they had a unity of heart. And, and, and by the way, the word heart is used in Scripture to define or to reflect upon the inner man, the inner person, the spirit of, of an individual. And it is the most used phrase in God's Word to describe the inner man. The word heart is used. In fact, the heart, as described in Scripture, is where God turns, is where God moves the individual. It's, it's where God begins to move people toward himself. In fact, it is the heart, it is the inner man where the rebirth takes place, where God's Holy Spirit brings to life the inner man, quickens it, brings it, brings it to life. It is the place made alive by the Holy Spirit. But we use this term in this regard like you mean it, 
because they were gathered together in one spirit and they fellowshiped together like they actually meant that they loved Jesus. And there was a mission ahead of them. So God was already changing their motives, their inner heart, and knitting them together. Hey, let me ask you this. Have you ever met somebody upon first meeting them and you introduce yourself or, or you just have a casual conversation? Have you ever met somebody and, and there is a common bond? That you, feel, you feel that this person, have you ever met somebody and you say, that person is a believer in Jesus. This person is a, is, is a Christian, is a Christ follower. You never met before, and before your conversation is over, you, you ask, hey, are you a believer in Jesus? Are you, are you a Christ follower? There's just something of the commonality that you can't quite explain or put your finger on, but it is the commonality that Jesus is Lord. Now, these people, they had the same goals, they had the same purpose, they had the same mission in mind, but they couldn't quite put their finger on everything that was happening. That is why it said that they sat under the teaching of the apostles daily. And so, but one thing they did understand, they understood that here is a man by the name of Jesus, who is the Christ, who's the Messiah. He was dead. He died on a cross, a cruel death. But he is alive. There have been some miracles performed by God through the hands of the apostles. And that's what they knew for sure. And they have been totally transformed and changed by Jesus Messiah. So I think to myself, I'm like, man, this has got to be a, this has to be an exciting time in the history of the church. Man, to be a fly on the wall and to, and to see those, those things un, unfolding. A great time to be alive in the history of the church. They were brothers and sisters in the Lord. There was unity this was probably one of the greatest examples of unity that the world has probably ever seen. They talk about the structure of the Roman Empire. They talk about the machine that was the Roman Empire with all their intricate designs and their system of roads and the way that the, the uh, Roman Empire was a fine oiled machine. And they hadn't seen nothing when God's people are together. They haven't seen nothing like when God's people are in unity. See, they didn't have to sit down. Peter didn't have to sit down with John and, and those 10,000 people who believed. He didn't have to draft up a bylaw system. He didn't have to sit down and draw up some policies and procedures. This early church was in its most pristine time. That is, until... We are introduced in chapter 5 to Ananias and Sapphira, which will come to them later on. I'm sure that there was some division. I am sure that there were things that they did not see eye to eye on, on everything. But they had their purpose. They had their marching orders. They had their mission, this Acts 1-8 framework from your Jerusalem to your uttermost parts. They had the marching orders from Jesus, and God was adding to his church daily. And I think about this unity and what happens within the body of Christ often 
is we let our own preference, we let our own agendas rise up. We end up fighting on hills that we should have never got on in the first place. And I began to think about how the enemy works and the, the enemy does work. Satan is up to disrupt any work of the Lord. In fact, the Bible tells us in James that he's like a roaring lion. He goes around seeking whom he may devour and causing discord along the way. In fact, the enemy, I would say, he prides himself. The enemy boasts when Christ's followers are at odds with one another. I would go as far as to say that the enemy worships himself when Christ's followers are at odds with one another. The devil thinks he has won the day. He thinks that he has won when we fight and squabble over things that have no eternal value at all. Now, I can sit right here this morning and give you an example after example of disunity throughout the history of, of the church, example of disunity. But what I want us to turn our attention to this morning, what I want you and, and, and me to turn our attention to this morning is to give is give return for unity. What I mean by that is founded in this question. What at Piney Grove, what at Piney Grove demonstrates unity? What in this local body of Christ that you can say that exemplifies unity in Jesus? Can you give testimony of unity within this local body? So I'll leave you to think about that and to build upon unity rather than building upon the disunity. I have noticed some things over the years in ministry. I began a ministry in the late 90s, beginning to serve the Lord and been serving in, as pastor of two churches now for 13 years. And, and I have got to notice how people respond to things that they do not like when things that are not going their way, when certain preferences aren't met to the T, when things happen in the local body that they do not like, they respond in either one or two ways, if not a third. I'm going to highlight two ways. One way is they, they talk about it to everybody except for the person who needs to be addressed. Amen. This is a Matthew 18. This is a scriptural command. So we, need, we address to everybody and everything when the person that needs to be addressed is left out. So that's the first way. The second way is, and I've noticed this quite a bit, they'll either ignore the issue altogether, ignore it, and distance themselves from it and have nothing to do with it anymore. And so they'll stiff arm it, they'll go on their way, they'll, in fact, ignore it and go elsewhere. And I have got to tell you, based upon the word of God, that that is a horrible and unbiblical response. That is a twisting of scripture out of its context, if disregarding it altogether. Now here's the thing about it. We are meeting here this morning because we want to worship Jesus and we want to hear God's word. Amen? We want to hear God's word. We want to be convicted of God's word. We want to be changed by God's word. And we say that we treasure God's word, then I would challenge you to read God's word and to apply God's word like 
you mean it. And here's the thing about it. The devil gets a black eye. Think about this imagery. The devil gets a black eye every time the body of Christ is unified together. Now, I don't know if that <laughs> holds theological water, but I think I'm in the same boat. Charles Spurgeon said this about church unity. He said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. Listen to this. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Think about that. Satan, the enemy, values the importance of unity more than we do. He goes on, since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. The thing is that, that sometimes we are so wrapped up in our own world and the things we have going on that, that we do not see the enemy's strategy. We do not see when the enemy is up to no good amongst our body and we'll either disregard it altogether, we'll sidestep Matthew 18, 15 through, or we'll just... We'll just ignore it altogether. And the thing about it is, we, we wonder about the strategy of the enemy, which has, he has a strategy. What is the, what is, what's coming our way next? But we have a Savior that we have victory in. We have victory in Jesus. And the map that the devil has planned in his strategy, it's out before us. The enemy has his map out before us. We find that in James, that he is like a roaring lion. He goes about seeking whom he may devour. And he can, if he could catch you at your weakest and devour you there and discredit your testimony in Jesus, that's what he's going to do. His map has been laid out. We know his work because the word tells us. The Bible also tells us that greater is he that is in me and you than he that is in the world. Verse 33. With great power the apostles were giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord and great grace was upon them all. So two things I want to point out. There's great grace and great power. So number one, we'll talk about great grace. Kent Hughes said this of verse 33. He said that there is great grace. Here is literally mega grace. This mega grace, grace lavished upon us. It's the gifts and the favor of God poured upon the undeserving. That's me, the undeserving. Christ came to an empty people and poured his grace upon them. We are saved by grace. We are healed by grace. We are nurtured by grace. And there is no appropriate response to grace other than thanksgiving. So we testify of God's mega grace. The grace of God abounded with this whole community. It was the glue that held them together. God's abundant grace. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. It was the truth of the resurrection that bound them together. It is such a great display of God's grace. And I wonder how many people can look at Piney Grove and say, man, that is an example of God's great grace there. Same, same could be said of his great power. 
He gave them mega power. Mega power. Now, I know that this sounds like some video game from the 80s, get a, a mega power-up or something like that, but the idea behind this is this explosive power. In fact, we borrow our word for dynamite from this word. Now, don't go inserting and saying that the apostles had dynamite power. That is not the implication. We've actually borrowed that word. So it's like to say that they had this explosive power of God, this noticeable power of God through their community, as we saw with the lame man, explosive power of God moving greatly. Not only that, this phrase used in verse 33 that the apostles were giving their testimony. And, and I love this because this word gave is unique in this verse. It is unique because it implies that the apostles were giving back, continuing to give back something that they were in duty or bound to give. In other words, you might not be following me on that, but in other words, it, the testimony of the risen Jesus was just something that they had to proclaim. It was in their DNA, okay? It was in their worldview. It was in their bones as evangelists and apologists. It was in their DNA. It was like a message that was shut up in their bones and they had to get it out and they had to testify of it. So here we have this generous giving spirit pervading through the church and the atmosphere was one of great care as well. Now, I must be in some regard, the bearer of bad news or good news, depending on how you take it. And I know, I know of a church or two who has experienced revival over the past few years. And, uh, and I'm not talking about the ones in the news. I cannot say whether they have received true revival because it is not my place to cast that kind of judgment whether their hearts were in the right place. And I'm sure that in some of these churches, and if I mention some of the names, you might even know where they are or who they are. And I'm sure that there are, they have experienced true revival. Individuals experience revivals. And, and, and I don't know all the motives of all the people that are involved, but what I know is this, that there are some of those churches, one if not two, still to this day, still to this day is bitter unforgiveness. How can there be lasting revival if there is division and unforgiveness? True revival will bear true lasting fruit. And the Spirit of God will not move in a church that is broken, divided, and backbiting. Now, I'm not saying perfect, but you add all of those things to the mix, and I would imagine that the Spirit of God is not blessing that church opening that church to other missional endeavors. The best thing for us to do as a church is to come to this altar and repent that we did not approach that person or persons that we have offended or who have offended us and lay it down, give it to God. D.L. Moody said, I have never, I have not yet seen or known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's, where the Lord's people were divided. J.C. Ryle said something very similar when he said, unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. This means true unity yields forgiveness. True unity will yield gentle and sharp rebuke. It will yield the centrality of Jesus with repentance of sin. 
So listen to these verses in the narrative in closing. That we are encouraged to encourage. Encouraged to encourage. There was not a needy person among them. For all the landowners sold their houses and brought what they had to the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each that had need. He was a man named Joseph called the apostle by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He's an encourager. He was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So the reason that I mentioned uh, Ananias and Sapphira at the very end of the, uh, just a while ago, was here's two positions. We'll not get into Ananias and Sapphira until later. But here are two positions. Here is Barnabas, who did what he was told, obeyed God, sold the land, laid it at the apostles' feet, and the kingdom of God grew. Yeah, Ananias and Sapphira, who sold, who uh, disobeyed God, kept the bit for himself, and the Lord struck him down. So the reason that this is mentioned, we should carry on and read on, but there's two positions ended, and we'll come back to that when we jump into chapter 5. But there is a tidbit about Joseph that I want to highlight in closing. The apostles gave Joseph, this man Joseph, uh, who sold a field and gave the money to the apostles, they changed his name to Barnabas, which means son of consolation or son of exhortation. Uh, in short, Joseph or Barnabas, he was, given, he was given the name Barnabas because he was an encourager. He was given the nickname because he was a person that was an encourager. So I want you to think about that for a minute. What nickname would you be given if your name was based upon your overall persona? Who would you be known as? What would your nickname be? I, I grew up with a, a fellow. His, his nickname was Possum. And I can't tell you why, but his, name, his nickname was, was, uh, was, was Possum. And so I, I began to think about this. Uh, what nickname would we have if our overall persona would be uh, project our name. And so you might be known as grumpy. Somebody might be known as old ill-tempered. Somebody might even say, oh, here comes the, uh, here comes cantankerous the ill. One might say penurious the needy or destitute the needy. Maybe your name would be selfish or hard-headed. But think about that in terms of Barnabas. What a good testimony that is to have a nickname given to you based upon you being a good or a faithful encourager. We need people in the church who are more encouragers today. Barnabas was a man who gave his property, gave up all that he had to follow Jesus. And even in that simple act was a great sense of encouragement to the church. Throughout history, there has been some really bad names given too. Uh, Ivan the Boneless uh, for his inability to walk. And so we might say, man, that's insensitive, preacher. Listen, this was 794 AD. Another one, hopefully you want to look at me too cross-eyed for this or too cynical for this. And so we're all grown-ups here, except for a few young folks. But Einstein the fart. Preacher, you shouldn't talk like that from the pulpit. For obvious reasons. There is Ragnar Harry Pants because of his pants that he wore slaying a dragon or a giant serpent. We have Carl Rover uh, given a name by George W. Bush that I will not repeat here this morning. 
And all these names fit some feature of these men in some way, some characteristic of their persona. So I say that to say this in this question, how about you and I today? How about us today? As Barnos was an encourager, are we an encourager? And so what do we, what do, we do? Do we build up or do we tear down? Do we build up like Barnabas or do we tear down? And if so, here's a question to further what are we building? What are we building up? We build beautiful churches with fine furnishings. We have a church that's comfortable. You can sit and find cushions. We got the air conditioning set throughout the building. God has given this place to come and worship, and forever we are grateful for that. But we spend time building up the land and building up our, our church. But are we helping to build up people in disciple-making? We're building up churches, but are we building up people? We erect fine buildings, but are we building up people who will go out and make much of Jesus? We have all the ministries. We have all the missions, which is certainly a good thing, but pressed up against the first century church. How do we fare? Now, I'm not saying that we would go out and mimic the early church. I'm not saying that at all. But Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. We don't go out and try to mimic the early church, but what we do try to mimic is that they followed Jesus closely. So with any local church, any size, whether large, small, whatever the church size is, no, no significance in those churches unless there is unity within. See, when people see a, a church that believes in the resurrection power of Jesus, when people see unity on fronts, they might be inclined to listen to the message of Jesus. When they see unity within, encouragement within, they see that people really love, there's an authentic faith there, people might listen to the message of Jesus. And when I say, give like you mean it, what do I mean? I mean more than just land, more than just gift cards, I mean, give of yourself like you mean business. Give of yourself like you believe that Jesus still changes lives. So what do we give? Well, we give testimony of God's great grace. We give encouragement to those who desperately need it. We live in a world where people are hurting. People are lost, but people are hurting, struggling, just hanging on. So we give encouragement to those who desperately need it. For many, it may be something as simple as a gospel proclamation. So number one, in closing, testify of God's mega grace. Secondly, encouraged to be encouraged. Give as Jesus gave. And how did Jesus, Jesus give? He laid down his life. Be willing to lay down our lives for Jesus. Give it all to him. And give it to one another as well. Lay down our lives to serve Jesus and to serve others and to give like we mean it. Let's pray.